Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Dr. Daniel Petrolak, Professor of Medicine and Urology at the Smilo Cancer Center, Yale University. I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Matthew Smith, Professor of Medicine uh, at Harvard University and Director of Genitourinary Oncology at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, we're going to discuss some of the exciting findings at ASCO-GU uh, regarding castration-resistant prostate cancer. So Matt, what are some of the uh, really exciting abstracts uh, that uh, you found at this meeting this year? It's great to be with you today, Dan. And um you know, what was it was really perfect in the oral abstract session. There was a, a propel result, primary study results followed by magnitude. So these are two trials looking at abiraterone plus or minus the addition of a PARP inhibitor. In the case of propel, it's a laparib. In the case of magnitude, it's niraparib. And it was just perfect to have them back to back because while there are some um, similar conclusions. There are also some striking differences, um, and I think there was a lot of interest in what might, may explain those differences. Uh, first, the similarities. Both studies reported that in the basically biomarker uh, positive patients, HR positive patients, the addition of a PARP inhibitor to abiraterone, acetate, and prednisone improved radiographic progression-free survival. In the magnitude study, most of the benefit being derived in the BRCA1-2 patients. Uh, the difference, though, came in the interpretation of biomarker negative patients, where, uh, and in the, so in, in Propel, they reported a positive effect in the overall population and a modest but positive effect in the biomarker negative patients. Magnitude was designed in a different way, and the patients were screened by study entry and assigned to different cohorts according to their biomarker status. And the biomarker negative group was studied that part of the study was discontinued early for, fut for futility, so reaching the conclusion that the combination is not effective um, in biomarker-negative patients. So magnitude, all the patients were screened before study entry and then assigned to the cohort according to their biomarker status. In Propel, they sort of enrolled all comers and then uh, did the analysis by the biomarker that was done after study enrollment or at the time of study enrollment. Exactly. So there was no assignment of group. There's no assignment. Yeah. So how do you explain the difference? You know, th this has been, there's a theoretical reason why you can combine these. Is it the PARP inhibitor? Is it the sequencing of how they, they administered dr the drugs? Is there something that was uh, unique about each trial that may have led to a difference in the, in the uh, outcomes? So first I would say, I don't believe it's due to the differences in the PARP inhibitor. So I don't think, I don't think is that you know, one drug is better than the other because best available data says they're, they're, they're far more similar than different, both exactly. in prostate cancer and other cancers. So I don't think that explains. I think it's simply the study design. And while in some ways the mag magnitude study design might be deemed more complicated, the interpretation is more straightforward because by having the biomarker negative cohort, it was more precisely des designed to determine whether there was activity in that group. The, the, and I'd also say, I guess, what difference are we distinguishing between because the, the, the so-called positive result in the, in the biomarker negative patients in Propel, in my opinion, was quite modest. So for this intermediate endpoint of RPFS, the hazard ratio is 0.74, corresponding to about a five-month improvement in RPFS. 
Um, and candidly, that magnitude of improvement in, in every other in every other study has has never translated into an OS benefit. So I think it's a small effect, and it's quite possible, again, in my opinion, that that may uh, overestimate the true effect in that patient population for two reasons. First, the imaging interval, I believe, was every three months. So it's kind of somewhere between one and two imaging interval improvement. So the true effect could be smaller. And then second, and this was a very feisty conversation in the discussion section, the as way. to whether or not there could have been contamination in the biomarker negative group with, with, uh, with false, um, false negative patients. So in other words, some of the, treat, uh, the observed treatment effect could have been from uh, contamination of the biomarker negative group with patients who had homologous recombination repair deficiency. Right. And, and also the other thing too, is how the patients do, uh, what type of assay used to get, put these patients on trial. I, I don't recall what the assays were and at what point they sampled the, the particular markers, but uh, obviously you can take it at any point during the continuum of uh, hormone sensitive and castrate resistant disease. And we've actually seen some situations where we've had the development of somatic mutations in patients uh, when they've been germline negative. And that potentially could be another reason why these patients could have had contamination. Although I do believe they did liquid biopsies right before uh, these patients. Yeah, that's my understanding. This is the point that came up in the, in the conversation, very provocative discussion uh, from those presentations was that um, propel use CTDNA. And the concern is if, if you, if you were CTDNA, basically null or uninformative, you'd be, I believe you were assigned to the biomarker negative group. So you could have had, it's plausible that you could have had some patients in that group uh, with false negatives. Right. We've not seen, we've seen just simply the HRD positive patients in, uh, in Propel, but we've not seen if there's been a difference between the <clears throat> BRCA1, BRCA2s <clears throat> and the remaining DNA repair mutations. And I think that's a really big question because if this may be driven predominantly by the BRCA2s. We've seen this in other trials where there have been combinations between immune, <clears throat> immune checkpoint inhibitors, between anti-angiogenesis agents, and the RPFS turns out to be positive. But when you do the sub-analysis based upon the individual components, it turns out that most of this is being driven by BRCA1 and BRCA2. And that's, that point is exactly what was seen in the magnitude trial, where the biomarker-positive patients are positive, but it's really being, as expected, to your point, driven by BRCA1-2 mutants. Exactly. The other issue here is the general applicability in 2022 of the, the trial results, because as we're seeing more patients being treated with next-generation antiandrogens in the castration-sensitive state, this population is going to actually decline significantly, because you're not going to have these de novo patients right after either just simply androgen deprivation therapy or docetaxel, and you're not going to have those patients to treat in this fashion. So I think one interesting idea would be to do a trial, perhaps in just the BRCA2s, to determine whether a patient should uh, continue on uh, abiraterone and then receive uh, a PARP inhibitor versus just simply the PARP inhibitor. And uh, I think that's going to be more relevant to the future population. A great point. The other, the, the other thing I considered looking at this is the question for clinicians, right, for us in the, in the clinic is, if you have a BRCA, say BRCA2 germline patient, it's clear you're going to prioritize giving that patient uh, a PARP inhibitor. But what we don't know from either trial is whether you should do that in combination or sequentially. And so, of course, neither trial formally addressed the sequential question. Um, and so we're going to be left 
um, wondering whether the combination is truly better than uh, sequential therapy with Abby followed by a PARP inhibitor. Exactly. So I mean, exciting results. I think we need further follow-up. We need to see the OS data, clearly. I agree. In these studies. I think that's going to be key because, again, the question is, does RPFS correlate with OS and is the hazard ratio uh, sufficient to, to see that particular change later on? And we've seen that in other trials where uh, particularly the uh, uh, aplutamide uh, abiraterone study compared to abiraterone alone, where there was a great RPFS initially, and then last year, I think, or the year before, they reported no difference in survival. So it, it's still, uh, I think, something we need to, to, to follow up and see. Agreed. Terrific. So other really interesting targets, PSMA, uh, although there weren't uh, really any major presentations at this year's meeting, uh, but certainly this is something that's on the horizon for the treatment of castrate-resistant prostate cancer. What are your thoughts on PSMA, PSMA imaging, and how we're going to incorporate that into our, our clinical uh, armamentarium. PMSA is uh, going to have a huge impact in the field in two ways. Imaging, so PSMA, PET-CT, or PET-MRI, uh, will change the landscape dramatically. We're going to be reclassifying patients. We're going to be, the logical impact of that is going to be greater therapy, more therapy earlier and intensification of therapy due to reclassification of patients. There's going to be a lot of metastasis-directed therapy as a consequence of that better imaging. And we have a lot to, we're going to have a lot to learn uh, because the technology is now in front of us. The other really exciting part, of course, is PSMA-targeted therapeutics. We believe PSMA lutetium is coming soon. That's going to be a really important tool in our toolbox for patients um, who have few other treatment options. And then there are a number of novel PSMA-targeted therapies in development, PSMA bites, PSMA Tritex, PSMA CAR-T. So all these are very exciting, um, and we hope to see a lot more um, from that space uh, in coming years. It's been, I think, really satisfying to see this because after all the years of pursuing PSMA imaging, remember the, the prostatin scan years ago, which yeah. really unfortunately never, never really uh, met its promise. And then, of course, all the PSMA ADCs that were developed uh, that really did never really bore fruit. Now, now we're seeing after all of this research, the really the great PET imaging and uh, also now the therapeutic lutetium, which I think is, is really a major advance. Uh, I think the real question is going to be, how are we going to use these PSMA scans, as you say, for intensifying therapy earlier? And are we starting, are we going to do too much? Uh, because certainly antigen deprivation therapy has, long-term side effects, as you've very, very well described over the years with bone and with muscle and, and with other uh, uh, metabolic issues. But the question is going to be, how do we integrate this? How do we design trials with the patients knowing this information and saying, hey, I've got something on my scans. I don't want to be randomized. Uh, I want to be treated now, or I don't want to be treated because I don't want to undergo the side effects. So there are going to be a lot of challenges in designing clinical trials and using some of our novel agents earlier. Very well said, but you know, once that door is open, it's very hard to close it and pretend exactly. you didn't look in there. <laughs> so exactly. That's going to, that's going to, so this is how, you know, the technology of PSMA PET imaging is going to, is, is already in front of us and we're going to have to catch up as quickly as we can. Terrific. Matt, any closing thoughts? No, thank you very much. Great to speak with you today. As always, and, and thank you all for uh, joining us uh, with this really exciting review of, of ASCO GU. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, 
and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.